right. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us for hour number two of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Bean. That's what we're going to try to do for you in the second hour. We're going to crank it up a little bit. Continue the conversation. You're welcome to leave your comments on Facebook. We're on Facebook Live. Of course, the podcast will be available everywhere you can get a podcast. In just a little while, coming up before sometime before noon today, and uh, if you're on Facebook Live with us, how about spread the show? Would you spread the word about the show? Like us, um, share us, and let your friends know that they can tune in. If you enjoy the program, maybe they will too. All right, I want to get back to the conversation here we were having about whether or not Trump just runs up the middle the way he did in 2016 to get the nomination. I made that statement yesterday. I backed it up this morning with one poll in particular, that shows that if Tim Scott and Nikki Haley are in the race in South Carolina, if, if, if everything was as it is now, if it continues the way it is, then Tim Scott would get about 14%, Nikki Haley would get 12%, Ron DeSantis 23%, and Trump is at 43 So you take out Haley, you take out Scott, and DeSantis ends up with a 50-43 win over Trump in South Carolina. So, or, or 54, actually. So, um, you know, that would suggest that the same path of having multiple candidates takes away from the one candidate that has the chance to win the nomination. But then Dan McLaughlin, writing at National Review today, is, is pointing out the differences between 2016 and today. And, of course, there are differences. He goes on to say, he started out with saying that Trump's opponents aren't the same, which is true. And we talked about DeSantis' platform and why he's far ahead of anybody that would have gotten in the race at this point for 2016. But then he goes on. He says, sure, DeSantis may fail, and that's a reason why it may be prudent for other Republicans to enter the race. Listen to this part. So long as they don't overstay their welcome if it becomes apparent that they cannot win. See, that's the key. And that's not what happened last time. You know, you here. here's the way this goes. Certain candidates will look at certain states and say, I'm going to hang in there till I get to this state because that's where I'm going to really make my stand. Or the debates. You remember last time, the debates were a big deal. Candidates would say, well, I'm going to see if I can improve my standing by having a stellar debate. And we've got, we got a debate this week, and then we got another one in a month. I'm going to hang in there, raise my profile, and see if I can make hay at one of the debates, create an opening, kind of like NASCAR. You know, you watch NASCAR. Sometimes cars, they get jammed up, and somebody pushes somebody out of the way or kind of nudges in between a couple of cars and runs through, and that's how they take the lead or that's how they improve their position. Kind of the same thing happens politically in a debate. And certainly that can happen. But what's likely, it's, I'm back to my more likely than not scenario, it's more likely than not that these candidates stay in way too long affecting the ultimate outcome. Presidential nomination races are like snowballs rolling down a hill. 
they gain momentum and strength as they go along. So if Trump puts four or five primaries under his belt and you've got DeSantis out there, he's run a strong second, but he hasn't won a primary yet because of all the other candidates. And if, if there's two or three of them out of six or seven that have made just enough, they've gotten just enough votes to think, nah, it's the next one. It's the next. If they stay in, Trump gets to a point that he's built up so much momentum that at that point he's unstoppable. Now, that that's a, obviously a scenario that could happen. All right, McLaughlin goes on. We don't know yet how DeSantis will respond to Trump's attacks once they are both announced candidates, and we don't know yet how DeSantis will handle the inevitable need to punch back. But the strength of DeSantis in polling, such as the recent University of New Hampshire poll, of the Granite State suggests that assuming DeSantis runs, he will enter the race from day one as a peer or even leading Donald Trump. While the polling we have thus far is spotty, don't hold your breath while looking for a good early poll out of Iowa, and in any event, premature, it requires a real effort to avoid the glaring signs of DeSantis' powerful position with the Republican electorate. All right, second thing. The popular mood and issue environment aren't the same. Many of the things that Trump did to distinguish himself in 2016 are either now part orthodoxy, such as his combative approach to the media or his hard line on immigration and trade with China, or faded in relevance, such as running against the Bush family in the Iraq war. I mean, obviously you're not going to hear Trump talking about the Bush family or the dynasty, and, and the Iraq war is long history. Now, one of the things that any candidate who's running for the Republican nomination will and should talk about is the withdrawal from Afghanistan. That's recent history that was a disaster, and it's led to other failures in our diplomacy overseas because of a lack of confidence our allies now have in America's ability to manage, for one thing, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, America's willingness to stay in there um, and not allow that disaster to happen, it just makes us look incompetent on the world stage. So there's no question that some of the candidates will use that as an issue. Other issues of risen importance, such as uh, ideological education, the pandemic, and inflation. So Trump is no longer selling something novel to voters who feel that nobody's listening. At the same time, the 2022 election has delivered some fresh lessons in how Republicans can lose precisely by following Trump's leadership. So that's going to be one of the big drawbacks for Trump is how his candidates did in the close, in, in the close races. Yeah, I'm, I'm not talking about the candidates that he picked, 200 and whatever number there were, that he endorsed, that, and William Timmons being one of them, that had no opposition. Well, of course they're going to win. If you can't win against nobody, then you definitely need to get out of the race and you don't need to be going to Washington. But here, here's the thing. Uh, the, the fact that those close races were lost by Trump acolytes, people that Trump put out pushed, campaigned for, gave money to, that's that's going to hurt him some in the primary coming up. And it makes some of these folks like Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, think that there might be an opening here. Third, Trump isn't the same. 
And I, I don't know how far to take this. I hear McLaughlin's argument, but I don't think there's enough difference between 2016 Trump and 2022-23 Trump to say that it, it's going to be a big deal for Trump voters, that he may not have quite as much energy at 78 that he had at 70. But that's what McLaughlin's saying here. He's saying there's a big age difference between 70 and 78. He's increasingly stale and predictable, ill-equipped to keeping his options open and his opponents off balance, and he's too obsessed with his own record and ever-increasing list of grievances to keep his finger on the pulse of where voters are headed. Now, let, let me unpack that a little bit. McLaughlin doesn't like Trump. That's pretty clear because that's a harsh assessment of President Trump that I think is unfair. And I think a lot of those things are not true about him. I don't think he's wandering. I think he's got a, a pretty good plan. I mean, he announces for president early, then he steps back. All this stuff about the documents, he just lets that stuff rage around him. And then when he reemerges, he's not out there doing big rallies. He's going to New Hampshire and announcing his leadership team. He comes to South Carolina and he announces his leadership team. He's building a structure this time. Last time he had no structure to speak of. I mean, he just he exploded onto the scene. He became popular because of the way that he talked about the press, the way that he went after other candidates, the fact that Republican voters were sick of the establishment in the Republican Party, and Trump was poking his finger in their eye, and he just he, he really didn't have to have a whole lot of ground organization to win the nomination. Now, it, it appears to me that he's approaching it in a different fashion. Go build your team. Let them get out there and go to work for you. Get as much groundwork as you can laid before DeSantis gets in. Because I, I still think Trump thinks he's going to be the major opposition. So I, I don't agree with McLaughlin's assessment here that Trump's age is going to be that big of a factor. I, it, Joe Biden got elected president at his age. Give me a break. Trump's not going to. People, when you look at Trump and you look at Biden, there's no comparison in terms of which one of them is sharper mentally. Uh, it's Donald Trump. I mean, he's still... He's still got it, so to speak. He can get out there on the campaign stump. He can put sentences together that make sense. Uh, he can, he's got a message to deliver. And I think he's doing it right now in a little bit different way than he did in 2016. Maybe, you know, just maybe, he's listening to some of these campaign advisors that are saying, look, here's, this is not 2016. It's 2023. You've got to chart a new path. Okay. McLaughlin goes on here. He said he, Trump is also burning millions in legal fees, and he's distracted by the many investigations surrounding him, which was not the case in 2016. Well, that's true, but I think he can walk and chew gum at the same time. I'm not willing to count him out just because he's got a prosecutor going after him in Georgia. Uh, he may face charges in Georgia. I don't, I don't know what the grand jury is going to hand down. But there, you know, we've been waiting. Everybody keeps saying, oh, any day now. Well, why have we not heard something about that? I mean, it looks like if they were going to bring charges, they would have brought them by now. Not saying they're not, but I'm just saying that hasn't happened yet. We don't know what effect that's going to have on him. 
Same thing is true about these about these documents. Look, if you think the Justice Department is going to go after him over these classified documents, and even if they do, people are going to laugh that at laugh at that. They're going to go, "You got to be kidding me!" By the way, we're finding out now. We we knew that there was a cover up because the documents were discovered before the midterms back in November, and now we found out that the National Archives had prepared a statement. At the time that the documents were discovered, they were about to release it, and the Justice Department nixed it. No, 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 no! That's exactly what happened. The Justice Department stepped in and didn't let the statement go out. And now there's going to be an investigation into that. But all I'm saying is, with with everything that's happened with Biden and what's happening now with Pence, um, forget the document scandal. That's not going to hinder him, regardless in my view, of what the Justice Department does. Um, what Trump is now trying to do, coming back at, the, at age 78 after losing a national campaign, is entirely unprecedented in American history. Grover Cleveland remains the only president to return after being voted out of office. But Cleveland was 55 years old in 1892, and he had won the national popular vote in his defeat and led a party that had lost six consecutive national elections before the 1884 victory, but had gained 86 seats in the House in the 1890 midterms. So, yeah, there are differences. When people say, well, wait a minute, Trump can do it. Grover Cleveland did it. Cleveland was 55. He won the national popular vote. Trump has yet to do that. He won the Electoral College, which is the election. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that we get away from the Electoral College and go back to a straight vote. That's that's not a constitutional democracy. That is our our republic. That's the pure democracy that the founders steered us wisely away from. So there you go. There's the argument. Um, I say 2023 going into 2024 is going to look an awful lot like 2016 or 2015 going into 2016 when you have too many candidates, so many, that the one who's got the largest base is going to win. I still think that's the right assessment. We'll see what happens. Well, if you haven't heard the news yet, his radio talk is going away. Uh, 919-897 as of March 31st will no longer be His radio talk, Gary Miller, is retiring and uh, well-deserved after a long career. Uh, The bulk of it spent here at his radio, and um, he's going to be going off to do other things, hopefully spending a lot of time with his wife and family and um, enjoying the the fruits of a long and and productive career. Um, What am I going to do? Well, I'm not sure yet. I'm working on it. I'm working on continuing this radio program in a different form um, it's very I, I, I'm not going to have a radio platform so that has to be translated into either purely a podcast or uh, a podcast accompanied by a YouTube channel and Facebook live um, it's still going to be done right now my plan is to do the program in the mornings and it will probably take a shorter format it'll be something like maybe 45 to 50 minutes about the length of a normal podcast. But these are just ideas that I've got. I was on the phone yesterday uh, when all of this was confirmed and talking to different people about ways that I can continue to do commentary and have people be able to listen to it. So 
Um, I'm, I'm working on a website that I'm hoping will be a become a conservative news website for the upstate that I can get people who I trust and know that are writing good stuff, but I, I want to bring them all together on a platform that is associated with me continuing to do the commentary in the morning um, as a Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. So I've got the month of February. I've, I'm starting some meetings tomorrow um, to start the ball rolling, the equipment I need, the platforms, all of that. And once I get all that worked out, I'm going to take a month to make sure that I've got everything in place. And then starting in March, I'm going to start telling you every morning where you can continue uh, to follow my commentary. I'm not going to say continue to follow this show because it's going to take a different format, but continue to follow the commentary. But as of March 31st, Gary's retirement date, um, his radio talk will, all programming, will shift over to something else. Uh, don't know what that is. Soon as we know for sure, we'll tell you what that's going to be, so you'll know what's going to be coming out on 91.9 and 89.7. All right. Um, the Twitter files is probably one of the most underreported story uh, stories in the media. You know, the fact that it's obvious now that the FBI and the Justice Department, uh, which, of course, the FBI is associated with the Justice Department, uh, other government agencies were deeply involved in affecting Twitter and what Twitter allowed on its feeds and what they kicked off their feeds leading up to the 2020 election. That it, I mean, that's being investigated now by House committees, but we don't need an investigation to know what the Twitter files have revealed. But one of the things the Twitter files discovered is the scam of something called Hamilton 68. Now, you, you may never have heard of Hamilton 68, but it's a computerized dashboard that's designed to be used by reporters and academics to measure Russian disinformation. It was the brainchild of former FBI agent and current MSNBC disinformation expert Clint Watts, and it's backed by the German Marshall Fund, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, a bipartisan think tank, um, and it also has backing people that are on the board, CIA, former acting CIA chief Michael Morell, former ambassador to Russia Michael McFall, former Hillary for America chair John Podesta, and one-time Weekly Standard editor Bill Kristol. So all of these people combined for Hamilton 68, which it is, we're now finding out from the Twitter files that it was a complete fraud that the people that they had on there were it, nothing was verified as far as Russian information and ties of the Trump administration to Russia. A lot of people have, I mean, we've had people call this radio program and talk about all of the connections that the Trump administration had with Russia, or that Donald Trump and his companies had with Russia. A lot of that came from Hamilton 68 because reporters would go there and check out information based on the information that Hamilton 68 was putting out. It just turns out Hamilton 68 was a fraud. That's according, according to McLaughlin here at on uh, National Review. The company was, and, and, and the way that we know this, um, the, you know, Twitter execs 
were actually shocked when they began to find out that the information that they were relying on from Hamilton 68 to make a lot of decisions they were about who got on and who got off, that, that they knew early on that it was a scam. The accounts Hamilton 68 claimed were linked to Russian influence activities online were not only overwhelmingly English language, 86%. By the way, if you want to know why that's significant, I mean, stop and think about it for a second. How can, how can you have these Russian influence activities that are primarily in the English language? But mostly, there were people largely in the U.S., Canada, and Britain. They grasped right away that Twitter might be implicated in a moral outrage. They wrote that these account holders need to know that they've been unilaterally labeled as Russian stooges without evidence or recourse. So Hamilton 68 was just picking people out, putting them up as, and saying, these are sources that we know are connected to Russia and somehow connected to Donald Trump. And it turned out the whole thing was a mirage. No collusion, no obstruction, no nothing. These accounts are neither strongly Russian nor strongly bots. No evidence. This is, these are emails that, that I'm reading you now that surfaced because of the investigation into Twitter the Twitter files. No evidence to support the statement that the dashboard is a finger on the pulse of Russian information ops. Hardly evidence of massive influence campaign. So Joel Roth, who was the trust and safety chief over at Twitter, said, I think we need to just call this out as the BS that it is. Except in the email, he didn't say BS. Okay. Uh, the two founders of Hamilton 68, the blue and red team of former counselor Marco Rubio, Jamie Fly, and Hillary for American Foreign Policy Advisor Laura Rosenberg, told Politico they couldn't reveal the names of the accounts because the Russians will simply shut them down. One look at the list reveals the real reason they couldn't make it public. It's not because that the Russians would shut them down. It's because the Russians had nothing to do with it, and everybody, if the names got public, everybody would know that Hamilton 68 was a sham. Now, and I'm not overplaying this. I'm telling you, this dashboard was used by everybody. All of the major media, all of the reporters vetted their stories using this dashboard. NBC, CBS, ABC, PBS, CNN, MSNBC, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Mother Jones, which is a big left-wing website that puts a lot of information out. So if you want to know where progressives were getting all this Trump collusion, Trump collusion. They're talking to the Russians. This is a this is a, a, a spy uh, ring that needs to be brought down. It's coming from Hamilton 68 and the whole thing now, because of the Twitter fi files we've, we're finding, was just a scam. Let me get down here to another part of it. Levitch, let me back up to who Levitch is. Oregon native Jacob Levitch was one of the few people on the list who knew what Hamilton 68 was. Quote, I recall that it was some sort of spooky NGO that was involved in identifying accounts that were thought to be subversive, he said. Informed that he was on their list, he said, I can tell you that there's absolutely no sense in which I'm subject to any kind of Russian influence. He's a guy who lived in Oregon. Levitch went on. When I was growing up, my father told me about McCarthy-like blacklist, he said. 
As a child, it would never have occurred to me that this would come back in force and broadly and in a way designed to undermine rights that we hold dear. Levitch's tale is at the heart of what it is so sinister about the Hamilton 68 campaign. This was digital McCarthyism taking people with dissident or unconventional opinions and mass accusing them of un-American activities. The peculiar twist of the Hamilton 68 version of McCarthyism is that instead of targeting leftists, although there are several self-professed left-leaning accounts on the list, the bulk of the real accounts involve conservatives, which handles ultra, mega, dog mom, and classy lady for DJT. I mean, these are Twitter handles that were listed as being Russian stooges. All of it absolutely false. And this is mass. This is a bigger scandal. Some of you may remember the name Stephen Glass and Jason Blair, because these are people, these are reporters that cripple the reputation of the New Republic and the New York Times by slipping years of invented news into their stories. Remember Jason Blair? He had to come clean at the New York Times that a lot of the stories he wrote, he made up. Not, not, not that he didn't source check them. <laughs> he didn't have to source check them because he was the source. And so this, this Hamilton 68 is worse because of the number of outlets that used it to accuse falsely Trump and a lot of innocent people of being involved in Russia collusion. Um, I want to talk a little bit about South Carolina, about South Carolina politics, some of the stuff that's going on down in Columbia. I'll be heading to Columbia after the show this morning. Um, and got, a, a, you know, today the Senate is supposed to pull a pro-life bill out of committee, bring it to the floor and try to pass it without a bunch of hearings and testimony that usually happens in the subcommittee process. And then going to the full committee, the full committee gets to debate, tries to put amendments on. Uh, if they're unsuccessful, then it goes to the floor. So, you know, that today they're going to call for a bill that's essentially the heartbeat bill. It's a six-week ban on abortion. They're going to pull it out of committee to the floor, try to debate it, and pass it today. Then it would go over to the House. Now, in the House, it's probably going to go through the committee process. I mean, it would go through a subcommittee and a full committee. Whether they take testimony or not, I don't know. But... The first step for this bill is for it to be passed in the Senate today. It, it has all of the amendments. It has fatal fetal anomaly, which in case you wonder what that is, if you don't follow this debate, you may not know, well, what is a fatal fetal anomaly? It's an anomaly within the pregnancy that it's confirmed by at least two doctors that uh, the baby would not live outside the womb, that it's an anomaly that means that it, when the baby's born, it can't survive. So that would be an exception. It would allow a woman to have an abortion past six weeks if that exception's in the bill. The other ones are some that you're familiar with. Rape, incest, life of the mother. Rape would it would have to be reported. There's still a reporting element. You can't just go in and say to a doctor, okay, I was raped. Uh, I want to get an abortion. The doctor's going to have to inform you, all right, uh, yes, but I'm going to have to report that you were raped to local law enforcement so that there's an accountability for the crime. 
I mean, if there's someone who's committed a crime like rape, they need to be held accountable, and they can't be held accountable if nothing's ever said about it. It needs to be investigated. So that's one of that's another one of the exceptions. Of course, the other is incest and life. The other is the life of the mother. Um, there's some other things in this bill. Uh, there's some language that is built into the bill that sort of reflects what Justice Few said when he struck down the heartbeat bill. Language that would maybe make this bill more acceptable if it goes back before the South Carolina Supreme Court, which it certainly would. Uh, we're going to have Attorney General Alan Wilson on tomorrow. Earlier this week, he filed a formal request asking the state Supreme Court to take another look at the heartbeat bill. And, you know, if, if it was possible to get Gary Hill on before the court reviews the heartbeat bill, it's possible that the heartbeat bill in its current form, that the court would reverse itself if you have a conservative voice replacing Kay Hearn. But it's not going to happen because there's no way the court, the court knows this. So they're going to rule on this before Gary Hill has a chance to be appointed. He'll be appointed sometime next week. So then the next thing is, okay, we get another bill that's similar to the heartbeat bill. It passes, it gets enjoined by the circuit court, and then it ends up in front of the state Supreme Court again, this time with Justice Hill making the decision. A lot of people are saying, okay, this time it's going to be 3-2 in favor of upholding the heartbeat bill. Then we've got the heartbeat bill in place that will protect a lot of babies in the womb, not all of them. We know that we're still going to end up with somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 abortions a year in South Carolina under the heartbeat bill. So that's one scenario. But but in order for that bill to pass, it's got to go over and get through the House. And we've got the same situation in the House and the Senate that we had this summer. Senate is open to passing a pro-life bill, but it's got to be tied to the original heartbeat bill. It's got to be at six weeks at least. House says, nope, life begins at conception, and anything other than that is going to be rejected. Probably what would happen, let's just say that the Senate gets enough votes to pass this bill today. It goes to the House. It's likely that the House would amend it, put in the beginning life at conception, the Human Life Protection Act, 3447, it gets amended and it goes back to the Senate in that form, and then the Senate doesn't concur and we go to another conference committee. But the two bodies are still at loggerheads over it. So while this is going on in the Senate today, or likely to go on, the House has already passed H3447, which is going to go to the full Judiciary Committee on Tuesday, it will pass. And then the thinking is that they're going to take it up on the floor on Wednesday. So we may have, we may have a bill coming out of the House that protects life beginning at conception as early as next Wednesday. So that bill is likely going to be rejected by the Senate. So here's the question. This, this is what I, I just want you to think about. Our options are getting somewhat limited if you're in favor of protecting life. Is it better to pass a, a bill now that doesn't protect life as much as we'd like 
but does protect life much more than what we've got, because right now we're at 20 weeks, 22 weeks, is it better to have the heartbeat bill and then go through the next election cycle, hopefully have a couple of seats that are flipped in the Senate where you put someone in who's more conservative, and then you you go back and address this issue again with the heartbeat bill in place? Or do you just let the whole thing die, use this as an election issue, make these these people in the Senate run knowing that they've stopped pro-life bills from coming from from passing and use that as an opportunity to go to the voters and see if they get voted out of office and then come back and pass a bill that protects life beginning at conception because you've got senators now who agree with that. It's problematic either way because you do nothing and you've got thousands upon thousands of abortions every year between now. I mean, it would take, you know, the election's not until 2024 when all these senators will be up. You've got to assume that some of them, enough of them are going to lose, that you could pass a conception bill. And then once you get it passed, it's going to be challenged. It's probably going to be another year before it goes into effect. Let's say we get uh, Justice Gary Hill on the Judge Gary Hill on the court. He becomes Justice Gary Hill. Turns out that he's as conservative as everybody says. It's still three years before we get that bill back. We're talking about 2026, and during that time, we've had wide open abortions. Would it not? It it, it seems to me and this is just Tony Beam talking, that we'd be better off to have a restrictive law in place than go to the voters and make the case that we could be have a more restrictive law except for these in the Senate who will not allow it and make them run on that. Some say, no, it's better to make them run with a 20-week bill. may be better for the political outcome, it's not better for the number of babies that are going to die in the womb between now and then. And others say, well, you pass the heartbeat bill now, it's, it's, it's gonna, it could be years before you can get that issue back up for another vote to make it more narrow. Yes, that's true. But it just seems to me that we should be as conservative as we possibly can be with the pro-life legislation that we pass, not what I want, not what maybe you want, but what's politically possible. Let's protect the number of babies that we can protect now. Let's don't talk about let the whole thing die and wait two years with a 20-, 22-week window for people to have an abortion. That's way past the first trimester. Twelve weeks is essentially the first trimester. We're talking about 20 weeks. We're into the second trimester, well into it, by the time that when you can still have an abortion in South Carolina. So it just makes sense to me to pass what you can now, make the changes you need to make, and protect as many babies as possible in the meantime. Okay, uh, for those of you who have not heard the announcement this morning, His Radio Talk 91.9, 89.7, the His Radio Talk format is going away March 31st. That will be the last day that you will hear the programs that you're listening to now, including mine on 91.9 and 89.7 FM. Gary Miller is retiring, 
and uh, with his retirement, uh, the decision has been made to change this format to another format, and I'm not sure uh, exactly what that format's going to be yet. There's been some discussion about it, but I'm, you know, and when we find out, we'll tell you. But as far as my program in the mornings, uh, in the form that it's currently in, it will end March 31st, and so will all the other programs. Um, now, I, I'm not uh, going quietly into that good night, uh, so to speak. I'm going to try to develop an alternative platform so that I can continue to have commentary in the mornings. Um, it'll probably take a different form. I doubt it will be two hours. Well, I know it's not going to be two hours worth. Um, and it will likely be in the form of Facebook Live, a YouTube channel, and um, probably a, the podcast that will be between 45 and 50 minutes. I'll probably pick three topics, you know, um, uh, uh, for conversation during that time, maybe one local and two national uh, things that are out there in the news. Hopefully, I'll still be able to do interviews and be able to post some of those. I'm working on all of that. In fact, I've got a couple of meetings set up on Friday, tomorrow, uh, to start the process of learning how to do this. Um, I'm also going to be developing the website that's associated with this program. There hasn't been anything done to it in a couple of years. So I'm going to begin the process of making it much more robust. I'm going to try to get writers from uh, local upstate conservatives to be able to post their comments, their, their writing there, and uh, just a anything I can think of to try to continue the influence and the commentary of this program. And I, you, the folks that listen have been very kind. Uh, I, I run into you out there uh, a lot when I'm out and about. I hear comments about the show. You tell me that you listen, and uh, I'm very grateful for that, and I'd like to continue that if possible. So I'll tell you more about that. I'm working in the month of February to get all of that together, get all my ducks in a row, and then starting in March, we'll have about 31 days, 30 days, so, well, you'll have five days a week for the month of March for me to tell you how you can find it, and I'll be putting that information out. All right, uh, the House is likely to vote today to oust Representative Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee. Now, we talked about this earlier. Um, there were some Republicans who, and because of the slim majority that Republicans have in the House, it was possible that a handful of Republicans could stop this from happening. But uh, Victoria Sparts, who's from Indiana, she's a Republican from Indiana, uh, she's decided after talking with Speaker McCarthy that she's changing her vote. She was going to be a no, um, and now she's going to be a yes. So you had three, now you've only got two, and I, d I don't know if there's been a change in either one of those. But here's the bottom line. They're moving ahead with the vote today in the House to oust her. That means McCarthy knows he's got the votes. He wouldn't schedule a vote if he was going to lose. Uh, that's just, uh, you know, you don't, uh, that's good leadership. You don't go in. Uh, one of the things you make sure you've got your whip and they've whipped up enough votes. They've got the vote count is accurate. Now, it could be, uh, it, it's going to be close because all the Democrats, are, of course, are going to vote to keep Ilhan Omar on the Foreign Relations Committee. And it, it's going to take the vast majority of Republicans 
voting. They can have a few de- uh, defections, but not many if she's actually going to be ousted. There's um, So that vote will take place today, and we'll talk about it tomorrow. Look, she doesn't need to be on the Foreign Relations Committee. Not saying that she shouldn't be on any committee because she's a member of Congress. And we know that Santos has now said that he's going to he's he's resigned from the two committees that he was assigned. He's going to stay in the House, but he's not going to serve on any committees. And that's coming from pressure about his finances. It's coming from pressure about the fact that he lied to get elected. I mean, there's just a whole bunch of baggage there with Santos. But with Ilhan Omar, her problem is very simply that she's an anti-Semite. And she's trying to now back up and say, look, I didn't know that I was using anti-Semitic language. You know, I was just saying what was on my mind. Right. That, that is really pathetic. Um, it, it's when you, when you think about the fact that here's a person in Congress, who, she knows exactly what she's saying. She, but she tried to feign ignorance. This is from National Review from earlier. Representative Ilhan Omar this week tried out a new tactic as part of her campaign to remain on the House Foreign Affairs Committee despite her past anti-Semitic comments, pleading ignorance. On Sunday, Omar appeared on CNN, that would have been this past Sunday, to claim that she was previously wholly unaware of a number of anti-Semitic tropes. She said she had learned a lot from her Jewish colleagues in the wake of her various controversial comments. Quote, I certainly did not or was not aware that the word hypnotized was a trope, she claimed. I wasn't aware of the fact that there are tropes about Jews and money. Oh, come on. What a... that that's just laughable. You know, if you're going to tell a lie, you have to have at least enough of the truth wrapped around it that you can't clearly see the lie through the cracks where the truth is. I mean, I, and she doesn't even know how to do that. That had been a very enlightening part of this journey to insinuate that I knowingly said these things when people have read into my comments to make it sound as if I have something against the Jewish community. Oh, it's so wrong. Well, in 2012, Omar suggested that Israel had hypnotized the world and said, may Allah awaken the people and help them to see the evil doings of Israel. Yeah, she doesn't know. Look, forget the word hypnotized. You could have put another word in there. You you could have put have taken captive of the of the thinking of the world. I mean, whatever you want to say. It's not that hypnotized is a word that is a trope against Jewish people. It's that what she said about them and describing them as evil in the world. She's an anti-Semitic. She doesn't belong on the Foreign Affairs Committee, and I hope she's voted off today. All right, I'll see you tomorrow, 7 o'clock. Hope you'll join us. God bless you.